If you have your Bibles with you this evening, I'd ask you to uh, go ahead and put your bookmark in the 23rd chapter of the book of Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 23 is where we'll spend our time. Uh, once you do that, we'll actually be starting uh, by looking at a passage from Matthew chapter 10. So put your bookmark in Luke 23 and then uh, turn over to Matthew chapter 10 uh, and you'll be ready uh, as we begin our study. Uh, lots, of, uh, lots of emotions uh, for me this evening. Um, uh, let, let me say first, first things first, uh, to this congregation, to the elders especially, I'm grateful for the invitation uh, to be here. Uh, it's, uh, it's always an honor to be asked to preach somewhere, uh, and, and I consider it doubly so to be asked to come back uh, somewhere. And uh, I, if, if your shepherds are doing their job, and it's quite obvious that uh, you guys are, uh, then you're, you're selective about... Uh, who's preaching, who's teaching, you're, you're trying to make sure that uh, you're, you're trying to feed the flock, which is the responsibility, and shepherd them. And uh, that, that's a great responsibility to, to be asked to come speak. And uh, I recognize that, and uh, I, I'm honored, and I'm grateful that, that, uh, that you've asked me to be with you. I, I hope that we have accomplished to some degree uh, what uh, y'all have wanted us to accomplish in this gospel meeting. Uh, I have appreciated your work, uh, appreciate uh, the Hudgens and the work that they do, uh, appreciate all of you, uh, your hospitality this week, having me in your homes, uh, your kind comments, uh, your, your attentiveness. Uh, I, uh, I don't much like being away from home, but uh, y'all have made it easy this week, and I thank you. I, uh, I bid you Godspeed in your work. Uh, let me say this in, in kind of connecting the, the next couple of comments that I want to make. There are a number of people here uh, this evening that I go way back with. Uh, Alan and Julie and Wayne and I were all at Florida College uh, together. Known the Lusbys, or they've known me all of my life. Uh, they've been close to our family. I've known the Pattons for a long, long time. Uh, Wayne and Alan and Julie in particular are special, and, and special for a lot of reasons, but I, I want this congregation to appreciate something. When you've known somebody for, what, 35 years now, and, and, and you, you move on with your life, and here you are four or 500 miles away from home, and you get to see them again, and they're faithful to the Lord. And, and you young folks, I, I really hope you will appreciate this. There are few joys in life that come close to seeing old friends who are still serving the Lord. Because I know way too many friends from those days who aren't. So thank you guys. Y'all are an encouragement to me. I appreciate you coming. It's... Uh, it's great to see you. I uh, wish we could just visit all evening. Alan and I sang in barbershop uh, quartet together in, in chorus. Uh, some of my favorite memories. Uh, and Alan and Julie and I dated all together. Uh, I, I personally take credit for, uh, to some degree, their marriage. Uh, I was the uh, intercessor who daily offered up prayers, one direction or the other, at, at least for a little time uh, during our days. Uh, thank you guys. Uh, sure is good to see you. Sure appreciate all of you. The influence you've been on me and, and, and in my family. And so uh, thank you all for, for being here. 
And I really hope that, uh, that those of you who are in this congregation get to have that experience from time to time. Uh, if you serve the Lord, you'll get to see that. If you don't, you're missing out. You're just missing out on something wonderful. So uh, uh, thank you for the week. Uh, if you're ever in Beaumont, by all means, uh, we would love to have you come and see us, uh, come visit with us. And uh, I hope that you'll continue to serve the Lord and that one day the reunion will be unending uh, for the family. So uh, uh, appreciate so much the week. Uh, would ask your prayers. Uh, as I travel tomorrow, uh, we begin a gospel meeting tomorrow night. Uh, Jacob's going to go off and preach in a gospel meeting tomorrow night. Uh, the work continues, and so uh, we'll solicit your prayers in those efforts, and uh, thank you for letting me a part of your work for a few days this week. You know, there's a lot of things that the Lord tells us in the Bible that we sometimes uh, forget or take for granted. Uh, as a preacher, and uh, I've talked about this with other guys that, that preach the gospel, Wayne, I've talked about this a number of times through the years, it's kind of frustrating to get up and pour your heart and soul into your work and, and see so many people that are just not interested in the gospel. And, and sometimes it's kind of hard to uh, uh, divorce that from your feelings about your work. Am I doing something wrong? Am I not uh, somehow or the other presenting the gospel in a way that is, uh, uh, that, that's moving anyone? And, and in those times, there are some passages that I think that are important for Christians to remember when Jesus sends the apostles out in Matthew chapter 10 on what we refer to as the limited commission, to, to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and to tell them that the kingdom is at hand, uh, he, he reminds them of things that He's taught them. He offers them uh, great power in order to uh, authorize the things that they are saying. And He offers them some warnings. And when you get to the end of Matthew chapter 10... He says something that we as Christians, whether we're preachers or elders or just folks trying to do it right, He says something that we sometimes forget. Verse 34, Jesus told the apostles, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be they of his own household. And he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The reality is, and Jesus makes this very clear, that the practical result of the gospel of Jesus Christ coming into the world is that it has divided people. And it's divided people over a lot of different subjects within the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't know a family who's not experienced that. Do you? Everybody I know in some way or another, if they're trying to serve the Lord have family members from whom they are estranged because of our convictions. And we sometimes get discouraged about that, and we think, well, that, you know, we ought to all be unified. Yeah, ideally, we ought to all be unified, and ideally, everybody ought to listen to the gospel of Christ. But the Lord reminds us, you know, you're, you're scattering seed, and some folks are going to not listen, and some folks are going to listen and then fall away, and there's going to be some that are going to be faithful, and, and then there's going to be divisions. Very often, at least in the past, I guess, maybe I should say it that way, what people have divided over who have some conviction about Jesus, what have they have divided over on 
Perhaps the most occasions has been some of the most simple teaching in the gospel, like, what do I need to do to be saved? Uh, you know, the Bible's pretty straightforward. At least it is to me. Now, uh, I don't know your convictions. There may be some visitors here tonight that are going to disagree with what I'm about to say. But the Lord's pretty straightforward when He tells the apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. To me, that's, that's pretty straightforward. Or Matthew's account, go make disciples in all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Or as Peter concludes, or at least to some extent concludes his sermon in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized. And it is puzzling to me that there are so many people who still in our day, smart people, educated people, people who can read and understand the Bible, who take issue with that. Now, I'm not sure that there is as much discussion about this as there used to be. Uh, I'd be interested in a show of hands as how many people in the last two months have had a discussion with someone who didn't believe you had to be baptized to be saved. You, biblical arguments in our day and age are kind of going the way of all the world. Satan has kind of uh, altered his uh, schemes to try to get us to think that, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're honest and sincere, and if you want to believe that, that's fine, and I'll believe my way, and we're all trying to get to heaven anyway, and there's a lot of different roads, and so we don't argue about it much anymore. But, but I'm going to tell you something, and um, I, I want this congregation to, to, to listen to this. I think probably if you're my age or older, this is just something that's kind of ingrained in our conviction but I'm not sure so much with the generation coming up. You need to be able to talk to somebody about what they need to do to have their sins forgiven. You, you, you need to have that information readily at hand. And, and you need to understand uh, what arguments are going to be made in opposition to that. Do you guys ever talk to anybody about their soul, to your friends? I, I guarantee you, you have friends that aren't Christians. You ever have a discussion at school about what the Bible says about much of anything? Y'all got to get in that habit. But because you're not going to be able to rely on this generation in 20 or 30 years, you're, you're going to be the ones at the forefront of, of taking the gospel into the world. It's going to fall on your shoulders. And if you don't start looking at some fundamental things, then, then I'm afraid about what's going to happen to those who are trying to stand up for the gospel in the future. That's part of the reason that this week I've tried to talk about some kind of fundamental things. You don't go to meetings very often anymore and hear somebody talk about the thief on the cross. And you may be looking at this going, why in the world are we talking about the thief on the cross? I, I, well, because we need to talk about the thief on the cross from time to time. That's why. Because when most people even mention the thief on the cross, the, the thief on the cross is mentioned within the context of what a person has to do to be saved. And I can almost guarantee you most of our friends in the denominational world, in the big Christian world, look at the thief on the cross as an example of what you don't have to do to be saved. And if you talk to somebody about, well, you know, the Lord expects us to repent and be baptized. Uh, I don't know how many times people have told me, well, what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. And I find that interesting. And, and, and so I want to spend the remainder of our time talking a little bit 
about what we can learn from the account in Luke chapter 23 about the thief on the cross. Luke is the only one who records this particular incident in the life of Jesus. And and this is one of those uh, passages, like many others that God includes in His revelation, that's a curiosity to me. Jesus spent 30 to 33 years on the earth. We know so little about what He did and said. John says at the end of his gospel that uh, the the, the world couldn't hold the books if you wrote everything down that He did. Uh, And God just gives us little glimpses. He tells us the fundamental things we need to understand about who He was and what He said so that we can have a relationship with Him. And when something's included, and especially if it's included more than once, I think we need to give special attention to it. It's there for a reason. And maybe that's the first thing that we ought to ask ourselves is, why is this here? In Luke chapter 23, the, uh, the account really begins, I guess, kind of up in verse, uh, uh, I guess verse 32, if, if you really want to try to get a little of the context. Uh, this is after Jesus has been tried and He is carrying His cross out of Golgotha. Actually, it's been laid upon Simon at this point. Uh, and verse 32 says, There were two other criminals led with Him to be put to death. We don't know much about them. Barabbas was uh, the one who actually was scheduled to be killed, and I think probably along with these two. Uh, And uh, we think of them as thieves because they are uh, complicit and they are identified that way. Uh, But uh, there was also murder involved, and I think probably, this is just my opinion, they were probably involved in that in some way or another, and that's why they're subject to the death penalty. So they are being led out to be put to death. And verse 33 says, When they come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They divided His garments and they cast lots, and the people stood looking on them. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let Him save Himself if He is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man's done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. One little conversation. Why is it here? Well, let me begin with at least my observations by saying, if you're going to study this, I think there's something that you need to appreciate about the concept of faith. Because I think the reason we study the the thief on the cross and and the very idea of bringing him up says something about our concept of trust in God. I, I don't know anybody who calls themselves Christian who, who would deny that you, that you have to trust God. You have to have faith in God. You have to believe in God. And, and the Scriptures are, are, are full of the concept. We studied Monday night from Romans 
about our reaction to the grace of God and our trust in Him and what that entails. Hebrews chapter 11 says the, the, that, that without that kind of faith, it's, it's just impossible to please God. And I don't really care what someone believes about how you go to heaven. Whatever they think their way is, the chances are pretty good they're going to say, you've got to have faith. Well, let me, let me offer a couple of observations about real faith since we're looking at the thief on the cross. And it is a study, in my opinion, about faith. Real faith is characterized by seeking the will of the object of that faith. If you trust someone, especially someone as we find portrayed in our relationship with God, someone who is in a position of authority, who has something to grant to us and has placed conditions upon that, if we really trust that God's going to take us to heaven, forgive our sins, raise us from the dead, then, then what that trust demands of us is that we, that we are interested in what He has to say. And we're interested in what He has to say because He's put the conditions upon our salvation. I believe Jesus taught this everywhere He went. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 in the Sermon on the Mount, which I think was Jesus' stock and trade sermon. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And, and, and that, is, that, that teaching is reflected in other places. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Luke 6, 46, which is a parallel. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? And, and the reality is I don't know many people that's even going to argue with that. But what I want you to appreciate about that is if you're going to talk about Jesus, and if you're going to talk about faith, and you're going to talk about salvation, that is the thing that set Jesus apart. We think about Jesus as doing the miracles and the virgin birth and the wisdom in His teaching. And I believe all of that. But you want to know what really made Jesus the perfect sacrifice that He was? It's what he said in John chapter 6 when he said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the key to dealing with temptation. That's the key to obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the key to faithfulness. That's the key to sanctification. That is the key to everything. If all I'm concerned about is doing the will of my Father, then I'm not going to have any trouble serving the Lord because that's what God really wants. He wants us to seek Him, to pursue Him, to have a relationship with Him on His terms. In Romans chapter 12, when Paul gets to the practical conclusion of the grace and faith discussion we made the other night, he, he says, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or spiritual service. Do not be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Faith, trusting God, ultimately says, God, I want to I please you. I want to do whatever you want me to do. I want to be a follower. I want to be a child. Just, just tell me. And any sacrifices I have to make, I'll gladly make. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24, if you desire to come after me, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Trust me. I'm the one taking you heaven. I'm the one telling you how to get there. I'm the one showing you the way. Trust me. 
Quit worrying about yourself. Quit worrying about what you want. Just, do, just, just follow me. We're going to go please God. Now, now, I'm not sure there's very many people that's going to argue with that. That that's what faith really is. The kicker with folks is when you start applying that to the Bible. Because if I really want to do what God wants me to do, if I really want to please God, if I really want to put my faith in God, I'm going to have to find out what it is that He wants. And where am I going to go to do that? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to go to, the, to His Word. It's amazing to me how many people want Jesus but not the Bible. And, and you ask them... Uh, what do you know about Jesus? Well, they'll start reeling off all these characteristics of Jesus. Well, where did you learn all that? Well, I learned it all in the Bible. But the Bible over here says you're supposed to do this if you're going to please Jesus. Oh, well, I don't believe that you have to do that. Well, then why do you believe all this stuff that it says about Jesus? You can't have it both ways. The reality is if I want to please God, I want to do what He wants me to do, if I'm honest in that, then I need to be honest about how I approach the Bible. And you can be dishonest in how you approach the Bible. We studied Sunday morning about uh, uh, Satan and Adam and Eve. And we made the observation that when Satan tempted Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, he took the 91st Psalm and he twisted it around. He quoted it verbatim, but he twisted the meaning behind it. He's using God's Word, but he's not using God's Word honestly. Jesus confronts the Jewish leaders of his day with the same thing whether it is the hypocrisy of tithing certain things but not being honest about the bigger principles, whether it is the idea that you have heard that it was said this, but I say to you, over and over you find in the New Testament Jesus and His apostles addressing the fact that people are good at taking the Bible and twisting it around. And it's something we have to watch out for. I want you to, here's, here's where we're going with all this. I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 23 and I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at what God has to say about this, this man that was crucified next to Jesus. Why are you doing that? Are you doing that because you want to know what God has to say to you and clearly there's something here that He wants us to learn? Or is the only reason that you would ever turn to Luke chapter 23 and talk about this man that was crucified next to Jesus is because you want to try somehow or the other to prove that somebody was saved without being baptized. Why are, you, why are you using God's Word? Is it as an expression of faith? Am I going trying to seek God's will? Because I'm going to tell you a problem that we all have from time to time if we're not careful. We'll be dishonest. We'll ignore something that the Bible says because we don't like it. Or we will look for passages in the Scripture that justify things that we want to believe, whether they are accurately taught or not. I'm going to tell you, it is a temptation to be dishonest, to look for the loopholes, to find the exceptions, to try to go about proving my perspective by looking at God's Word. I'm going to tell you, folks, that's not faith. That's not trust. That's not the pursuit of the will of God. And I'd strongly suggest this to you the next time you're talking to somebody and they say, well, what do you think about the thief on the cross? I think what you ought to say is, why do you bring that up? 
Is there something about the thief on the cross that you have learned about serving God? Or are you going to use one part of the Bible to try to disprove another part of the Bible? And if you can take one part of the Bible and disprove another part of the Bible, what's to say you can't do it the other way around? What's to say you can't disprove much of anything that you don't want to believe? Are we going to the Bible in faith? And, and, and that's what I would really encourage in you younger folks. Is when you read your Bible, you read your Bible to learn about God. How He is, how He acts, how He thinks, what He's done, what His promises are, what He doesn't like. And, that, and, and then, then you have a basis for whether you're really going to trust Him or not. So, the, the first observation, the big observation about this lesson in my mind is real faith goes to this passage with one reason and one reason only. What does God want me to learn? And here are two things I would suggest to you that I learn from this passage. The first is the very thing we've been talking about. I would propose to you that the thief on the cross is an example of faith that's unparalleled in the Scriptures. And people are going to say, wait a minute, really? Yeah, I know, it's puzzling to me as well. Because when you read Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 27, or Mark's account in Mark chapter 15, the first time we're introduced to this man and the other criminal that's being crucified next to Jesus... What we're told is that while they're on their way to the cross, they're both reviling Jesus. In fact, Matthew uses a particular word. There are times when I absolutely love the old King James, and, 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 so, and sometimes it's because of the, the translations, the specific words. Uh, in Matthew chapter 27 and, and verse 44, it, it, the, the newer translation says that there were two criminals that were condemned with him, and, and when others were were criticizing Jesus, it says that they also reviled Him. But the old King James said, they cast the same in His teeth. And I've tried to look at that Greek word and figure out why is that there's got to be a connection somehow or the other with that imagery because you find it in some of the Greek definitions. They cast the same in His teeth. I don't know why that's so moving to me. But to me, it's one thing to say something ugly to someone it's something else to say, man, I'm sticking this in your teeth. And that's what we're told about this man. Not, not just the other one, but both of them. Both Matthew and Mark make that observation. Now what that says to me is that at some point, I don't know if, if these men had any kind of faith in Jesus at all. It's curious. Why would he be rebuking him, reviling him, casting ungodliness into his teeth, and then turn around in a, in a few hours and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Well, I don't know. There's a lot about this that we don't know. Jesus has been teaching publicly for the better part of three years, as best we can determine, based upon counting his trips to Jerusalem. It's hard to know exactly, but I think that's probably fairly accurate. And, and he's known all over the country. Herod knows about him. Pilate knows about him. Even Paul, when Paul's on trial years later, says to Herod, look, all these things that have happened that I'm preaching, they didn't happen in a corner. You know about this stuff. You're familiar with the way. I, I would suggest to you the very real possibility that both of these criminals had heard of Jesus of Nazareth. I'm not sure you could live in 
Jerusalem in Jesus' day and not have heard of the prophet from Nazareth. But I don't know what they thought about him. Jesus was preaching, as we talked about earlier in the week, that the kingdom was coming. And he was preaching that everywhere he went. And, and I think that the Jews were looking at that, putting Old Testament passages together and thinking, okay, there's going to be a king, he's going to rise up, we're going to overthrow Rome, we're going to rule the world. And Jesus was hailed to be the king. In fact, that very week, two days earlier, when Jesus came into town, or I guess four days earlier, when Jesus came into town, crowds, multitudes of people are behind Him and coming out of the city in front of Him, laying down uh, branches of trees and laying down their garments and hailing Him, the One who comes in the name of the Lord. They were receiving Him as the Messiah, the King. And now this guy that's supposed to be the king is right next to me with nails in his hands and feet. He's been beat to a pulp by the Roman soldiers when they've scourged him. He's bleeding. He's weak. He couldn't even carry his cross out. He was supposed to have walked on water. He was supposed to have raised the dead. supposed to have done all these miracles, feed all these people. People are standing to the base of the cross screaming at him, if you're really the king, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. And there he hangs. And if my understanding was this was supposed to be the king, uh, you know, I might be making fun of him too. I think that's a very real possibility. That as this all plays out, this man with some perhaps knowledge of Jesus is critical because certainly he doesn't look like a king right now. But it may be that just uh, he's hurting, he's in pain, he's been crucified, he's probably been scourged too. He's angry, he's frustrated. Maybe he's just joining in the crowd as an expression of his anger and frustration and pain and he's lashing out in anything and everything. Maybe it's because he's just jumping on the bandwagon with all the others. It's hard for me to see a guy hanging on the cross making fun of another guy hanging on a cross, but that's what's happening here. And, and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you're thinking, hey, if I jump in with the crowd, maybe they'll have sympathy on me. I, I don't know. But nothing initially looks like this man has any confidence in Jesus. Some time during this event, he appears to have a change of heart. Because the disbelieving thief, if you go back to Luke's account in chapter 23 and verse 39, one of them is, is continuing, if you're really the Christ, save yourself. He doesn't care if Jesus saves himself. He's thinking, if you're really the king, show everybody by not only saving yourself, save us too. That'll really prove the point. Not only you coming down, but you taking us down as well. And and, and the reaction of our guy in verse 40 is fascinating. He looks across, and, and I don't know if, you know, I don't know if they're in a straight line. I don't know if they're angled where they can see each other. I don't know if they're having to turn their heads. But it's some, somehow or the other, he, he looks beyond Jesus to the other man over there and goes, Aren't you afraid of God? Don't you see the circumstance that we're in? You're under the same condemnation as that man that you're making fun of. 
Tell you what's interesting about that is uh, the idea of being under the same condemnation is not, I don't think, the death penalty. Yeah, they're all going to die. But if these are Jewish men, and the Romans didn't crucify Roman citizens, so I think they probably were Jewish men. According to the law of Moses, if you were hung on a tree, you were cursed by God. So here's a man facing his own death. Nobody's going to pull him off of this cross. He's going to hang here until he dies. And it's clear at this point, Jesus is not coming down off the cross. They've been there a while when this conversation takes place. And in spite of the other guy mocking Jesus, Jesus is not going to save them all. What, what would you think about if you had two or three hours in excruciating pain to consider the end of your life knowing that you were going to go to hell? You ever thought about that? Because I think that's what's in this guy's mind. I, I am facing my judgment. How could you say that? Don't you realize where we are and where we stand before God? Aren't you afraid of God? How in the world did I get here? And I'll tell you something else that's gone on as these thoughts I suspect were going through. I can't imagine that they weren't. As he's been watching Jesus. I don't know how much of the trial he got to see. I don't know if they were all scourged together. These guys really aren't introduced into the account until they're on their way to Golgotha. But it's possible that they were scourged together. Jesus didn't say anything. Jesus didn't cry out. Jesus didn't curse the guy that's whipping him. Jesus didn't lash out. When he's reviled, he doesn't revile again. When he's slapped and mocked, he... he he does not return in kind. He, he practices the very things that he was preaching on a regular basis about turning the other cheek or loving your enemies. And as they are nailing them to the cross, this man was right there when he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. You know, we read these things, and occasionally you hear somebody preach a sermon on the, the words of Jesus from the cross, and that stuff's kind of, a, it's almost academic to us. You know, this wouldn't have been academic to him. He's listening to this, and this is in real time with real pain going on, and that had to have impressed him. I'm, this is what I think happened. He's looking at the end of his life and his own just condemnation. He told the other guy, He's, this guy's done nothing wrong and we're receiving the due rewards of our punishment. If Jesus' reputation has preceded him, he already knows what kind of man he is. And over the last few hours, he's seen it. Can you imagine somebody walking up to you, to your face, I don't think the crosses were up high. If you've studied this, most of the time, most people think that they were just, just above eye level. And somebody walking right up in your face and going, I knew you were an imposter the whole time and you deserve to die. And if you really are the Son of God, you come on down right now. But I don't believe it and I know you're not going to do it. And here you are and we get the last laugh and spit in his face and walk. If that happened to you, what would you do? I know what I would do. 
You know, if I had the power to come off the cross, I guarantee you that guy would have been real sorry. And Jesus just took it. He didn't take it glaring at him. He didn't take it gritting his teeth to keep from saying something he shouldn't. Meek and gentle as a lamb led to the slaughter. Saying nothing. Don't you know it made an impression upon this guy? And, and, and at some point, he looks at Jesus and thinks, you know, maybe he really is the king. <laughs> In fact, the expression that he offers next is uh, unparalleled. What he turns to Jesus and says is, first of all, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In and of itself, that's, uh, you, you know, if you believe that Jesus is the king and you're about to die and you ask him to remember you when he comes into his kingdom, that, that would not be an unreasonable expression. But Jesus is about to die. <laughs> and if his thinking about the kingdom appears to be the kind of normal thinking of the kingdom, how are you going to set up a kingdom when you're dead? And how are you ever going to remember me? And yet that's what the thief asked for. I believe you're going to be the king. And when you are the king, I'm asking that you remember me. Whatever has happened, whatever I've said before, I recognize now who I am as I stand before God, and I'm willing to accept who you are. And I believe you're going to reign. That, that impresses me. That he knows Jesus is going to die. And my suspicion is he doesn't understand. How, how is he going to be king? I think if you asked him that, he probably goes, I don't know. <laughs> How's he going to sit on a throne when he's dead? I, I don't know. Maybe this guy has some brilliant spiritual insight. I kind of doubt that. But he trusts what he's heard. That I've come to set up a kingdom, that it is at hand, that I'm going to reign. Maybe he heard the, the part of the trial when he told the the, the, the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests when they say, are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, yeah, and you're, you're going to see it when I come in my glory. You're going to believe it then. I don't know. What I do know is he gained nothing temporally by this expression. None of the chief priests are going to stand over there off to the side and go, hey, did you hear that guy? He really believes Jesus is the King. We better take him down off the cross. We don't want to kill him. Do you really think that, that the thief is thinking, if I'll express my faith, something good's going to happen to me in the next few minutes? He knows he's going to die. We're under the same condemnation. There's no temporal motive for this expression. There's nothing to gain in earthly terms. He's not going to be on the winning team when it comes to an earthly kingdom. I wish I knew how that confidence was created in him. My only answer to that is, in some way, it was by the Word of God, because that's where faith comes from. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute, because I'd like to make a little practical application of that. This guy manifests some trust in God in circumstances that are just overwhelmingly hard. 
He's going to die. He can't explain what's going to happen, but he's asking Jesus to save him anyway. How much has your faith been tested? And is it strong enough to stand up to this kind of trial? I've seen in my own life times when I, I doubted God because of something that's happened in my life. I've seen it way too many times in the lives of other people. I've seen people leave the Lord because something difficult happened, because some brother or sister said something that, that insulted them, because things weren't always rosy and wonderful in the way they wanted to be because of cancer or divorce or heartache or, or, or a wayward child. I've seen people lose their faith over a lot of things. But I would propose to you that very seldom in our lives are we in a situation that comes anywhere close to this man's situation where we're facing our death, and as far as we can tell, what's going to happen to us is we are going to be condemned to hell because we are hung on a cross, and yet I'm still going to hang on to Jesus. And, and, and I've actually heard people say at some point, well, you know, th this, is just a, this is just deathbed faith. Everybody, when they die, grasps for the life jacket. I want to say unequivocally, this is not a deathbed confession. And I know that it wasn't. How do I know? Because the God who sees the hearts of men looks across to that man and says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. If this is a deathbed confession, then he fooled God. And I don't believe anyone fools God. What faith... What trust? There's the lesson for us to learn. And let me offer the last couple of minutes by saying the other lesson is look at the power of God. Look at the majesty of God. Look at Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, dying by exposure, having been beaten, having been cursed, having been scourged, having had his hands and his feet run through, having the very people he created spitting in his face. And what is he concerned about? Here's someone I can save. And I'm going to save him. Because I'm God. And because I'm innocent. And because I'm the judge. And I'm the executioner. And I'm the Savior. And he has that power. And that's what should impress us. Is that... Any way he wants to, he can save. It is interesting to me that we look at this and we get so caught up in. People get so caught up in, well, but this guy didn't have to do anything to have it to be forgiven. Jesus forgave this man. No, he didn't ask him to be baptized. No, he didn't ask him to repent. No, he didn't ask him to make a confession, although he basically makes a confession. He just asked Jesus to remember him. Because he's got faith in him when no one else did. And Jesus forgave him. And people say, see, you don't have to be baptized. I mean, you're missing the point. You, you want to use the thief on the cross as your example of what to do to be saved? Man, you really don't want to go there. Because <laughs> you've got to start living under the old law again. And then you have to commit... Uh, capital punishment, and then you have to find somebody to crucify you, and then you have to be right next to Jesus who's dying along with you, and then you have to ask Him to remember you. I mean, you're going to use the thief on the cross. Use Him all. 
The point is not, what did this man do to be saved? The point is, he's got faith in who Jesus was, and Jesus has the power to save. And that's what should impress us every day of our life, because that is the grand gift of God. That God who created and God who will destroy by a word, 2 Peter chapter 3, Genesis chapter 1, is the same God that if He chooses to say to me, Russ, you're forgiven, then I'm forgiven. He did that on a couple of occasions. He does that to the woman taken in adultery in John 8. does it to the man who is paralyzed in Matthew chapter 9. does it to the woman at Simon's house in Luke chapter 7. Let's use those as examples. The point is not what did they do. The point is what can Jesus do? And that's what we should grasp. And if He puts conditions upon us that He didn't put on someone else, who cares what they did or didn't have to do? He's told me what I can do. I don't have to haul my guilt around with me all the time. And if if I face some horrid death or some horrid disease, I'm not worried about going to hell. Because Jesus has saved me. And that kind of power and divinity merits our attention. You can woo-hog suey all day long. The University of Arkansas is never going to manifest that kind of impact on your life. And it's sad to me, folks. I mean this seriously. My wife, my wife's from South Alabama, okay? You, you know, you can't get up and say good morning without her saying, I love you, roll tide. Okay? You know, there's just, this is obsession. And we live in a world that's obsessed with the... With the Sorry for saying it this way. The stupidest things. Why aren't we obsessed with the power of God as it has impacted us and what life holds in store for us here and there? Who cares about the college teams? Who cares about the pros? Who cares about the next election? Who cares about this? Who cares about that? We serve a risen Savior who has the power of salvation. He's offered it to everyone. And if He asks us to repent, then let's get on with it. If you ask us to be baptized, if that's what He wants from me, I just want to do His will. let's, Let's go be baptized and let's serve the Lord and let's live a life with some hope because the grace of God has appeared. And are we not the most blessed people of all that He's willing to save us? I think that's why God tells us this story. Because one man in the most unlikely circumstances trusts in who Jesus was. And the most unlikely of men Jesus saves. So that I can trust that He'll save me and that because of that trust I'll just do whatever He asks me to do. Not questioning it. The only question that really remains is, do you want to take advantage of that? Or are you content with living your life, filling it up with the temporal pleasures that are never going to satisfy you, and spending your days giving your attention and your time and your effort to stuff that when you die is going to die right along with you? Is that what you want? Are you willing to look at the Lord and say, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Because folks, He's coming to His kingdom. 
and I really hope he remembers me when it's my time. I believe that he will because he's promised that. He has the power to, 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 to fulfill that promise. So I want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian, don't walk out of here without taking advantage of the power of the Lord and expressing your faith. If we could help you to do that, we invite your response while tonight we stand and while we sing.